be who you've always been to us, Jesus. Our hope is in you alone. Our strength in your mighty name. Our peace in the darkest day remains, Jesus. Cause this we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you've ever made. Jesus, you are unfailing. Our God, through the wilderness, and our joy in the heaviness, our way when it seems there is no way.
morning. Every high thing must come down. Every stronghold shall be broken. You wear the victor's crown. You overcome. You overcome. Every high thing must come down. Every stronghold shall be broken. You wear the victor's crown. You overcome. That's the worst that could happen. 
And what is death? Death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. So because we no longer have the fear of death, there is nothing in this world that could face us as far as fear that should ever cause us to fear. Because Jesus defeated for us the fear of death. There's no more fear of death for the believer. Because death is a victorious thing in him, we just get translated to a new place. Hallelujah. I want to read these few scriptures here I was reading this morning. I read on social media the other day. Uh, I like to do that because I like to see how other people think. I don't want to read about what other people think. I want to see what they think. And oh, they were, it was so sad. Um, uh, we have a, our wonderful dentist, uh, plug in the pl little plug here, Dr. Kurt Schneider. And, um, and uh, yes, we love our dentist, amen. He's very kind to our mouths. Anyway, um, uh, but I was reading of, of a lady and she was writing on there of how she had a panic attack recently when she went to the dentist because she was so afraid of, of COVID and something being put into her mouth and of her getting x-rays that she had a panic attack at the dentist and she had to get up and just leave. She had to run out of there. She was so afraid. And then other people were commenting there and I thought, dear Lord, I don't, my mind doesn't even go that way. But you think about the fear that Jesus has redeemed us from. And um, I thought of this verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It says, for you, and this is in a different translation, the ESV. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Abba Father. The King James says we haven't received this spirit of bondage. Fear is bondage. And I tell you, if you are, are ever, you've been set free from fear, but if you deal with fear in any area, I tell you, look at it straight in the face and tell it, fear, you leave me in the name of Jesus. And you speak to the fear that might be coming against your mind. You speak to the fear that might be trying to attack your emotions. And you can't just think it. You have to speak it and tell fear to go from you. And I tell you, you can walk. We can walk free from fear because Jesus has delivered us from fear. Hallelujah. Thank God we know that. Thank God uh, he is our victor. And even like that scripture or that uh, one of the verses said there in, their, in his presence, when his presence comes, we are free from fear. Hallelujah. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus has set us free from fear. We speak to any fear that might be troubling anybody here. And we tell fear, you go from us. You go from our mind. We have been set free from fear. You have delivered us, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for it. We are filled with joy. We are filled with peace because we've been freed from fear. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, before you're seated, why don't you greet several people around, that, around you. Give them a warm welcome and God bless you. And then after you've done that, well, then you may be seated. We want to welcome those of you who are worshiping with us today online on Facebook. Um, 
and uh, we are glad that you're joining us there. Praise the Lord. Oh, no, I should be looking over here right now. They're going to they're gonna upload it from the cameras right after the service. So there will be two online versions. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We're going to dismiss the children. They have already, they know what to do. They don't need us to tell. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank God that we have the freedom to gather together. We'd still do it anyway. If you're visiting with us today for the very first time, we want to welcome you, tell you that we're glad you're here. Could you just raise your hand if that's the case, if it's your first time worshiping with us today? A lady right in the back, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. We're glad that you're worshiping with us. We want to let you know a few things that are happening in the upcoming weeks. This coming Friday night uh, is our fall festival. And um, that is a time for really not just children, but for families. If you're a kid at heart, come join us. You want somewhere wonderful to go on a Friday night, whether you have kids or not, come be here. Your heart will be full. You'll have a good time. Um, but it is geared, of course, toward children. And um, there will be carnival games, and there will be food, and, um, oh, a pie-eating contest in Bounce House, and a, a balloon sculpturist, and a number of different things there for the children. So bring your children, bring your grandchildren, invite a few neighborhood children to come with you as well. And um, it's from 6.30 until 8 o'clock, or when people are done, and sometimes it's a little later than that. They want to hang out a little bit more, and that's just fine. So join us for that. You could uh, bring some candy. Also, there's going to sadly be lots of candy. Uh, sadly for uh, the uh, adults, sort of, I don't know. I always rated, we always rated our kids. They always wondered why that candy went so fast. Anyway, now they know. Now that they have, they're grown, they know that that's what we did. Okay, then Sunday, November the 14th, immediately following the Sunday morning service, we're going to have a Thanksgiving feast. And um, basically, it's a Thanksgiving meal that we enjoy together. And so we ask, uh, we ask you to bring side dishes, uh, all different kinds of side dishes. You can sign up at the information center. And uh, we will have turkey and ham. The church will have that as, and some other things. We just... The ladies just set up a beautiful uh, Thanksgiving uh, spread in the fellowship hall. And so we go and we eat together and enjoy some good Thanksgiving food and just fellowship with our church family. So we would love to have you be a part of that so uh, you can uh, sign up for what you'd like to bring and join us on that Sunday. Then this that same Sunday is our um, deadline for our Samaritan's shoebox and Operation Christmas Child. Um, that is the last Sunday that you can bring your uh, shoeboxes to the church. Um, they, we have a little station set up in the back of the sanctuary. Um, you can uh, uh, bring some boxes and, and uh, home that are already uh, made for you, or you can just bring some flat boxes as well. Um, and so uh, Dean uh, Rausch is back there overseeing that for us. He can answer any questions that you have. Um, we're going to show a DVD in just a moment that will um, uh, Franklin Graham's ministry put out to explain it. I think pretty much everybody knows about it, um, but they always do a great job explaining it. Also, if you don't want to build a shoebox, 
you could, uh, we'll build one for you. And so if you give $25 plus $9 for shipping, then we'll make a shoebox for you and you don't even have to go to the store. How about that? So if you want to do that, just designate on your offering envelope, shoeboxes or Samaritan's purse, something of that nature, and we will know what to do with it. And we will put that into our box count. Last year, we were a little over 700 boxes. And so we're just believing that we're going to hit that number again this year. Amen. Our family is doing six boxes. Thus far, we're going to do six. We're preparing for six. So we'll see if we do more than that once those are done. Praise the Lord. Okay, guys, if you want to go ahead and run that, uh, that DVD, please. The joy of seeing a child open the boxes for the first time is just, it's incredible. There's squeals and screams, and they're so excited to see what's inside their box. Oh my goodness! Every shoebox gift represents the love of God to them. We are so excited. Many of the children receive the shoebox for the first time in their life. We're here with Operation Christmas Child. The kids are so excited. We had the opportunity to hand out some of the boxes. There's so much joy, so much happiness, and it gives us an opportunity to present the gospel. We pray that these boxes will be used to bring a lot of happiness and joy, but more importantly, the gospel to each heart, to all these little children around the world. What a great gift. I get a present, I get to know who Jesus is, but not only that, I get to be discipled in His ways. Hundreds of thousands of volunteers work with Operation Christmas Child every year, preparing these boxes, praying for the boxes, that God will use them in a mighty way for His glory. This little shoebox has the opportunity to change the world. Not only are they going to get a shoebox, they're going to get the love and the message of Jesus Christ. Some go by helicopter, some go by ship, some go by camel, donkeys, canoes. We go at great lengths to take these boxes to children in the most remote parts of the world. And it's an incredible journey. After these children open the box, they have the opportunity to go through the greatest journey, the 12-lesson discipleship program, where they get to learn more about Jesus Christ. Right now, I'm right outside of Mazlan, Mexico, about six-hour drive up in the mountains. This is an indigenous people group, people that never heard the gospel before. The kids and the families that accepted Christ, almost a hundred altogether, have now started a church. Hemos visto una experiencia preciosa, grande, ¿verdad? en el pueblo. Y ese pueblo va a ser el medio para llevar el Evangelio a otro lugar. Que estas bendiciones que son de las cajitas sigan llegando hacia arriba y a la montaña. This shoebox gives us an opportunity to continue to shine the bright light of the gospel in the darkest and remote places around the world. We're seeing families come to know Jesus. Churches are sprouting up in these communities. These children are rising up to be disciples in their own country. The gift box and the gospel of Jesus Christ bring hope to our children to bring the smiles back on their faces. No greater need and no greater time than right now for us to go out and serve boldly. This is what these shoe boxes are all about, to go out in the bring of hope of Jesus Christ around the world. 
I'm just so amazed at what God does each and every year. This is an opportunity to impact the lives of millions of children, just like you've seen. But we need more boxes for next year. Every box is an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you, and God bless each and every one. Awesome. Hallelujah. What I appreciate is their ministry is very purposeful. And not all are. You know, sometimes when people give to the homeless or, or you know, they give in different countries, they just, I'm just being real here, they do it just to feel good like I did something, you know. And they don't necessarily share the gospel or do it in a way that's going to last or that's going to be effective. But I appreciate the Graham ministry so much because they're very purposeful in the way that they do it. Every child gets, that you saw those little booklets, it describes um, Jesus, what Jesus did, and it's in their language. And, you know, it's colorful. And they do it through churches. They don't just go into an area without a church contact. They have church contacts, and they're very purposeful about building the local church. So we appreciate their ministry so much, and it's it's good ground to sow into. So um, bear in mind, and then um, the uh, deadline for that to bring your box in is November the 14th. Praise the Lord. Then also, the last thing we want you to just put on your calendar is um, Sunday evening, December the 12th. We're going to have a Christmas concert at the church. We're really excited about that. We, we need something like this, and we're looking forward to it. Um, the group that's going to be with us is the Tommy Coons Band. Um, we asked last week, and not very many people people knew, knew about them. Uh, they are Grammy award-winning uh, group. They've been around for a while. They play with Franklin Graham. They played with Billy Graham, Greg Laurie at some of these large events. And so it's going to be beautiful music that night. We want you to come and not only just you come, but invite someone to come. This is a great outreach to, uh, for a Christmas concert. So we'll have some more information for you about next week. Um, and um, so you can reserve your spot for that Sunday evening. Praise the Lord. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to give this morning. There are uh, envelopes there in front of you on the seat pockets, and the ushers are going to come forward. Thank God that uh, we serve a good God and a faithful God, a giving God, a supplying God who meets all of our needs. Amen. The Bible says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Amen. We honor him with our substance and the first fruits of our increase. Praise the Lord. Lord, we worship you with our giving. We worship you with our lives. And we bring to you, Lord, our tithes and our offerings in worship. We thank you for multiplying it. We thank you for meeting all of our needs. We declare over our church family, we declare abundance. We declare provision. We declare protection. And we declare peace in the name of Jesus and to our families and over our families, Lord. We claim our family members that don't know Jesus. Lord, we claim them for the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. We believe that you are at work. And we thank you that you send laborers, that you soften their hearts. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
Family, after you've had the chance to give, would you stand and worship with us again? Wait, wait, wait. 
love you. We worship you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit here in this place. Thank you, Father, for teaching us, guiding us, directing us according to your will and your plan and your purpose. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1 this morning. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but cannot, can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Folks, I want you to realize that he's making a distinction between seeking a sign and recognizing the signs of the times. He's telling them that they should know the signs of the times, just as they're able to read the, the sky and the weather patterns by how the sky looks either in the morning or in the evening. He's telling them that in the same way they should be able to rely upon and recognize the signs of the times. We know that the rapture of the church is a signless act of God. What we mean by that is Jesus said that no man knew, knew the day or the hour that he was going to come. He said that about himself. He said only the Father knows that Jesus himself didn't know the times, the day or the hour at least, the specific time when the rapture of the church would take place. Apparently, that's because Jesus tells us whatever he knows. Now, if you think about that, that's an amazing thing. God the Father has hidden the time of the calling of the church and the catching away of the church because Jesus, being our friend, has said to us that he would not hold back anything any news, any recognition of God's plan and purpose. So God had to hide it from him. We have to be careful not to think that Jesus would be a snitch. But because he's so open and loving and caring to us, there's nothing, no knowledge, no work, that he would ever hold back on. But the point remains, Jesus said that we should recognize the signs of the times. One of the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples came to him and asked him, uh, he had said something about the, the temple being torn down and not one stone left upon another. The disciples came to him and asked him when was the end of the world coming and what would be the signs of those things. And Jesus told them certain things not talking about the rapture of the church, but talking about the second coming when Jesus comes back in judgment. But one of the things he said in that 24th chapter is he said, Behold the fig tree and the other trees. Now the fig tree always 
in the Bible represents the nation of Israel. And so he's saying to them, and saying to us too, in my opinion, he's saying that we ought to keep our eyes on the nation of Israel and the other nations and the different things that are happening regarding that. Now with that in mind, I want to refer back to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, the prophecies that Ezekiel gave concerning the end of times. Verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, and all of them clothed with swords, all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, and all of them with shields and helmets, Gomer and all of his bands, the house of Togarma of the north quarters, and all of his bands, and many people with thee. Now we know from the things that uh, the book of Revelation tells us, and then also that Ezekiel continues to go on and prophesies in chapter 39. We know that this is the beginning of the tribulation. This act of war, this uh, uh, coalition army of Russia and other nations, the, the certainly ones are, are listed, we know of what some of them are. For example, Persia would be Iran. Ethiopia, we know about them. We know about Libya as well. And some of these are mentioned. But by and large, the whole of the Muslim world joins together with Russia to start war with Israel. The Bible tells us that God destroys them in one day. One 24-hour period. God delivers Israel in such a way that changes the face of the world. It tells us that there's an earthquake, just as in the book of Revelation, one of the first several things that takes place. Actually, there are three things that we should probably make mention of. The first thing that happens when the church is gathered into, into heaven is that the Antichrist is revealed. The second thing is this great war begins, and it's talking about, must be talking about this thing, this war in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then there's a great earthquake. The Bible tells us that when Russia comes down and attacks Israel from the north, that is through Syria, it's a, there's a mountainous region there that, uh, that's pretty much on the border of Israel and Syria. And this great earthquake destroys a, a mass number of people specifically the armies that are coming against Israel and attacking Israel. And then it also speaks of this army ascending and coming like a cloud in the sky, which is a reference to an airstrike. And so between the earthquake and then God causes hail, fire, hail uh, and fire and brimstone to rain down from heaven, to destroy these, these uh, uh, airplanes and these weapons of war. It tells us that not only does the, uh, 
the fire and hail rained down on the armies that are attacking Israel. But that same fire and brimstone hailstorm falls on the islands of the sea and upon the nations that have joined themselves with Russia. And it only leaves the sixth part. That means 17% of these countries, the population of these countries, only 17% of it is left. I think the last time that I made mention of this passage of Scripture in Ezekiel, I, I came across the, uh, uh, the Scripture in here which talks about the Isles of the Sea. And I mistakenly said that it was the Philippine Islands and the islands in the Philippine chain. And that's uh, incorrect. I misspoke. It's the Indonesian Islands that are mostly Muslim. But regardless, every nation that joins themselves with Russia in this attack against Israel, this war against Israel, there's only 17% left of their population. In effect, God deals with, with uh, Islam, destroys Islam, and it never becomes a, a factor again from that point forward. Now, folks, think about that. The greatest threat we have in the world that we live in today is the threat of Islam. All the terror attacks and things that take place are a result of radical Islam. I, I use that term because it's a term that most people are familiar with. But folks, there is no such thing as radical Islam. Islam is radical. There is no peacefulness to, to Islam. And so if it's by definition the work of Islam, it is radical and it is deadly. More than likely, a high probability is that Putin is Gog. We know Magog is the, the uh, territory of Russia by ancient boundaries, not modern-day boundaries. But we're probably in a position not counting. I mean, something could happen. He could have a heart attack and, and somebody replace him. But absent something like that, as close as we are to the end of time, we're probably in a position to see who the players are in this end-time war against Russia, uh, end-time war against Israel, coordinated by Russia. I know when I start talking about this, some people would prefer not to hear it because they don't want the end to come as quickly as it seems to be. But let me just pose the question to you. How long do you have to be in heaven before you realize what Paul talked about was indescribable? He didn't have words to speak. He said it in the King James is translated, not lawful to utter. But it simply means he didn't have the ability 
or words that would compare what he saw and experienced when he was caught up into heaven with what goes on here on the earth. So the point I'm trying to make is I don't think we would have to be in heaven but moments before the idea and the thoughts of what we wanted to do or didn't get to do here on the earth loses any glamour whatsoever. Paul said to be caught up with Christ is far better. Not just better, but far better. So we're on the precipice of eternity. We see here in the last several weeks that Russia, China, and North Korea have all done missile tests, successful missile tests with ICBM type missiles. We didn't hear too much about it. It was probably mentioned just briefly on some of the mainstream news media outlets. Because the news media has to continue on their job of trying to scare everybody about not being vaccinated. So they don't have time to cover things like missile tests from enemies of America and Israel. Folks, part of Ezekiel's prophecy is the young lions, which would probably include America, along with a couple of other countries, that when these things take place, and when Russia and his coalition army invades Israel from Syria, that the only response they get is a diplomatic response. Questions are raised rather than allies coming to Israel's aid. Folks, we've never been at a time in the history of the world when Israel was more on their own than they are right now. Now we look at, or I, I do, maybe you are familiar with doing things, looking at things the same way, I don't know. But we look at what's happened in our country over the last couple of years. Two years ago, Israel never had a greater supporter than America. America has never had a president that was more pro-Israel than Trump. But that gums up the end time events. If the election had not been stolen and, and fraud had not taken place in the way that it had, then the end time events of, of Ezekiel's prophecy could not have been fulfilled in the manner in which is supposed to and will be. We have a tendency, and I'm at the head of the list on this, I guess. We have a tendency to want things to work out right, for truth and justice to prevail. But sometimes truth and justice messes up the prophecy and God's plan for the end. So here we are in a situation where in the last couple of weeks too, 
Iran has openly admitted that they're pursuing nuclear weapons. Prior to this point in time, they've hidden behind the, what they call the need for nuclear power to provide for their people. And of course, anybody with any sense knew that was a lie from the beginning. But now they're openly stating that they're just weeks away from having nuclear weapons. Well, what does that mean? That means Israel is pretty soon going to do a preemptive strike on Iran. Israel knows that Iran's number one desire for nuclear weapons is to wipe Israel off the face of the map, of the face of the earth. So when Israel does do this preemptive strike on Iran, what's going to be the result of that? I don't claim to know the future, at least not beyond what the Bible tells us. But one thing I think we can say for certain is in that event that these nations will start coalescing behind Russia and getting themselves in position for this war to come to pass. There are so many signs that have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled, so many prophecies that are taking place, the completion of the prophecies that are taking place that we rarely even hear about. One of the most significant to me is that the Dead Sea was prophesied to come back to life. Well, over the last year or so, they found fish in the Dead Sea. That's been the first time that that occurred since God executed judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea was basically created by the hill and the fire and brimstone that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see some of the things that are coming to, take coming to pass, things that will take place in the end times or in the beginning of the tribulation period, we should say. And so during those times, if we are cognizant and recognize the signs of the times and everything is pointing toward the fact that Jesus is coming back. We are the generation that saw both Israel becoming a nation and Jerusalem restored into the hands of the Jews. The nation of Israel, Israel became a nation in 1948 and Jerusalem was recaptured by the Jews in 1967. Jesus said that the generation that saw those two events would not pass away before he comes. Well, that's us. We have seen these things. And the other signs, the other prophecies being fulfilled are so numerous 
that you've really got to deny the Bible to ignore the reality that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. So what should we do? What's the work of the church in these last of the last days? Well, God didn't change the idea of what the church should do or give the church a due directorate. The church is supposed to do what it's always done, and that is bring people into the kingdom of God and teach people about who Jesus is and what he, what he paid the price for as our substitute. One of the things that we can identify in the scripture is that God's always been a God of miracles. And his miracles function and operate in many different ways. One of the things that the Bible is clear on that I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of in these last of the last days is these God of financial miracles. We know that Jesus manifested this to his disciples on two different occasions during his earthly ministry. On two occasions, the disciples had boat sinking, net breaking catches of fish. God's never been one just to make sure you got by. He's always been Jehovah Jireh, the abundant one. There are times in the Bible that God taught his people by giving them just daily bread. That's what the, the story of manna in the wilderness was all about. It was getting the Israelites or giving them the opportunity. They never really took it, never really grew into it. But giving them the opportunity to realize that God will supply their daily bread. Elisha had a similar experience, Elijah had a similar experience when by the word of the Lord he prophesied that there would be a great famine in the earth. God sent him to a place where he was fed bread and flesh in the morning and evening that was brought to him by an unclean bird, a crow or a raven or something of that type. When that ended, God sent him to a widow. I'm sure it was not what he expected. The Bible says by the brook of Cherith where Elijah was receiving bread and flesh by the raven twice a day. When the brook dried up, God told him that he had provided for him by a widow in a certain place. I'm guessing that Elijah would have expected this, to, this was a woman who had plenty. God identified the fact that she was a widow. And so there may have been thoughts in his mind that finally I'm going to be able to go to a rich lady's house and not have to worry about this food by raven anymore. But when he gets to the place that he 
is directed to go, he finds that there's a woman gathering two sticks to make a fire. Now, folks, I'm not much of an outdoorsman, but two sticks doesn't seem like much of a fire to me. But she gathers two sticks, and she's going to fix her and her son the last meal that they have provisions for. She's got a little bit of oil, a little bottle of oil, and enough flour to make a little cake with. And God directs Elijah to her and identifies that she's the one that he's chosen to provide for Elijah with. So he talks to her, talks her into making something for him first before she makes it for herself and her son. And you know the story. For the rest of the remaining time, probably somewhere around three years or so, the cruise of oil didn't run out. Neither did the barrel of flour. So here's the abundant God providing with a few drops of oil and enough flour for a few cakes. I think sometimes we make a mistake when we try to put in our own thinking how God is going to do what he said he'd do. The, every promise that God has made to us belongs to us. But the manner in which it is carried out, that belongs to him. The Bible tells us of another woman who came to Elijah. She was a widow as well. Her husband, husband was a minister, one of the prophets, or they were called sons of the prophets, which just indicates that there were, were lesser prophets and greater prophets. So she's a widow of one of these lesser prophets, and her husband, now dead, his debts are being called in. And she didn't have anything to pay the debt with. And so the only thing that would happen when she defaulted on the repayment of the debt was that her son would be taken into servitude to work off the debt for the person who extended it to her now dead husband. Elijah told her, first asked her what she had, and she said, the only thing I have is a little bottle of oil. So he told her to get her son and borrow as many pots as they could get their hands on. And he said, when you get those pots, close the door. I'm not sure what the significance of that was but it was something that belonged to her family and only her family at that particular time. And he said, pour the oil into the different pots. And the Bible says that the oil stayed until they ran out of pots. Now, folks, I'm not trying to say that somebody made a mistake here, but it seems to me that early on when she saw the oil being multiplied into the different pots, she should have made some arrangements to make pots for the rest of her life. She should have gone into the pot-making business. 
but it was sufficient. What, what poured out was sufficient to pay the debt and to provide for her and her son as well. God's so much bigger than what we expect him to be. God's so much bigger than what we can even estimate him to be. One of the favorite stories, my favorite stories in the Bible is tells us when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah and he joined with the king of Israel who was a, a, a wicked king. He joined them or joined him and combined their armies to defeat the Moabites. But the king of Israel wasn't much of a military person. He went chasing after the Moabites, and he got himself in a place where they were more than three days' march in any direction from any water. So he's facing the destruction of their armies. So Jehoshaphat said, let's go to the prophet and find out what we should do. The prophet said that if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, he wouldn't even inquire the Lord what to do because of the wickedness of the king of Israel. But God speaks to him and gives him direction about what to do. So he tells the two kings, Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel, he tells both of them to go back to their encampment and dig ditches in the, in the middle of the desert. And the Bible says that as the prophet foretold that water came from a direction where there was no water. The Bible doesn't tell us if it rained. The Bible doesn't tell us that there was some tsunami from, that took place from some direction because there is no body of water in any of the directions within several days' journey for the water to have come from. But the prophet says this, and I love this. The prophet says this is but a light thing in the eyes of the Lord. Something that is so impossible to even consider as an option or means of rescue. And the prophet says this is but a light thing for God to do. Well, the next morning, just as the prophet had prophesied, this water comes from points unknown. And it fills all the ditches and the trenches that they dug. Then it tells us that the Moabites, thinking that they've got these two kings, Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel, cornered and there's nothing they can do. They come upon this, and because of the way that the sun reflects off the water, they think it is blood. And so they assume that the Israelites have killed one another because they were without supplies and water. And they walk in the midst of the enemy camp who destroys them with the sword. God is the God that's more than enough. 
pastor friend of mine told me a couple of weeks ago about those certain person, the couple that was in their church. This couple had a traveling ministry of some type, and he came down with COVID. And apparently he had a pretty severe case, or more accurately, I should say, he had some pre-existing conditions that the COVID wrecked havoc with. And he wound up on a ventilator for something like 16 weeks in the hospital. His wife, who was attending to their business and other things in his absence, said that the Lord had spoken to them before he went into the hospital, just before he went into the hospital, about increasing their giving. And so she did. And then they find themselves, him unable to work, unable to conduct the meetings they had scheduled. So there's no money coming in from offerings from churches that they were scheduled with. But somehow or another, just by the hand of God, their income doubled for those four or five months, however long it was in the hospital. But they also wound up with a $2 billion hospital bill. But because the nurses and the doctors and everybody involved with this thing saw that God's hand was upon them, he was at the point of death time after time after time. And God delivered them. And as a result, the hospital forgave that $2 million debt. Now, if that's not provision from the Lord, I don't know what is. God's still in the healing business. He never left it. He will see us through if we'll stand on his word. I want you to look with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, folks, everybody realizes that it's talking about Jesus coming back to the church, right? The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And so the instruction is to be patient. Don't get anxious. But stay patient or be patient regarding Jesus' return. Now, most of the times if you look up the word patience in the concordance, you'll find that it has something to do with long-suffering. Patience is very definitely a result of long-suffering. But there's really a better definition for it. One of the better definitions, in my opinion, is steadfast expectancy. That's what these words, or the word patience really means. It means steadfast expectancy. Folks, a lot of people suffer long because they don't have any choice. But that's not patience. 
Patience is being steadfast, unchanging, unmovable, because of the expectancy that God's word has placed in our hearts. Patience is really about controlling your mind. The Bible says that in our patience we possess our souls. Patience is about controlling your thoughts. For example, do you remember the story of Peter walking on the water? The Bible tells us that Jesus came walking on the water and it was in the middle of a, in the middle of a storm. The boat that the disciples were in, they'd been directed by Jesus to cross over to the other side while he stayed on the other side of the river, or other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and prayed. Then when he finished praying, he went walking out on the water to the ship. And it was such a wild experience that the disciples thought he was a ghost. So he called out and said, don't worry, it's me. And then Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come walk on the water with you. Now, for all the dumb things Peter does, you got to admire this guy. Because whatever Jesus is doing, he wants to be a part of. Whatever Jesus is, is involved in, he wants to be right in the middle of it. And so he challenges Jesus to challenge him. He knows that the power that Jesus is using and exercising by walking on the water is a result of the spoken word. He knows that his only hope for success in what he wants to do, and which is to walk on the water with Jesus, his only hope for a success comes from what Jesus says. Folks, if we recognized how impossible it is for God's word not to come to pass, then we could grow and mature into the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. Well, Peter understands part of this. He knows it depends on what Jesus tells him to do. And so Jesus says, come, one word, come. And the Bible says that Peter stepped down out of the ship and walked on the water to go to Jesus. But then trouble started. He looked around and saw that the wind was howling and the sea was boisterous and he became afraid. Now, what should he have done? Folks, this is where patience comes in. This is where the controlling of the, your mind and controlling your thoughts really takes place. He could have stopped and thought, I don't mean stop moving, but he could have taken the opportunity to recognize that the wind and the waves weren't a problem to Jesus. What I mean by that is that Jesus was effectively walking on the water and he wasn't bothered by the wind or the waves. And he could have deduced from that. You know how the Bible says, come let us reason together. God expects you to use your mind. He gave you your mind for the purpose of using. 
The instruction in the word is renew the mind, not remove it. And he could have considered that the wind and the waves weren't a problem for Jesus. He could also have considered that he was effectively and successfully walking on the water. And the wind and the waves hadn't stopped him. So we see from this not only how the devil works, but how important it is for us to keep our minds stayed on him and on his word. If fear doesn't take hold of Peter, then the devil cannot stop him from continuing in this great miracle of walking on the water. But Peter became afraid. He stopped in his forward motion. It really wouldn't have mattered what Peter thought if he had continued in the, to obey the one word that Jesus gave him, which was come. If he doesn't stop, then no matter what he thinks, no matter how much the wind is blowing, no matter what size wave washes over him, if he doesn't stop, then the devil can't stop him. So we see that the devil works against us in fear. If he can't make you afraid, he can't stop you. If he can't make you afraid of sickness, he can't stop your faith from bringing, it, bringing healing to pass. The Bible says the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. Shall heal the sick. It can't be stopped. God's word is greater than anything in the universe. And when we extend our faith to stand on his word and to accept what his word says, no matter what it looks like or how it feels, if the devil can't get us off of that position with fear, he cannot stop us. One of the things I think is going to be in the last days, and it's a quick work. Isn't it amazing how quick things are happening around us? Isn't it amazing how quick things change? If you compared America from a year and a half ago to the America we live in today, who could have possibly imagined that things should have changed so quickly? But part of Ezekiel's prophecy of the wheel inside the wheel has to do with time. And it has to do with the acceleration of things the closer we get to the end. Well, things have certainly accelerated. But the Bible says that the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. It doesn't say it might heal the sick. It says it shall heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Well, if you know anything about standing in faith for your healing, you know that it's a battle with the devil. He wants to tell you and does tell you that you're unworthy of anything that God has. 
He wants to convince you that your faith is not strong enough to bring about the results that you desire. But one of the things you need to keep in mind is that the devil is a liar. And so examine his lies. If he tells you that your faith is not working, then you can count that as a lie. My faith is working. If he tells you that you're not worthy, since he's the father of lies, the original liar, then that means God says you are worthy. If the devil tells you that your sin is withholding the blessing of healing or any other blessing of God, you've got scripture that overcomes that. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up and if he has committed sins they shall be forgiven him. Folks, this is how you stay and maintain patience. And remember, it's faith and patience that inherits the promises. It's important for us to think right when it comes to the Word of God. It's important for us to think right when it comes to taking hold of God's promise. It's important for us to think right, for us to walk in the blessing of salvation. And to take advantage of everything Jesus paid the price for. It all comes down to thinking right. If you don't think right, you won't believe right. If you don't believe right, you won't speak right. If you don't speak right, you're sunk. Be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the Lord. For he has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. He's expecting, he has declared that there is a working of the Holy Spirit that's going to be unique in the last days, not because it's something that's never been done before, but because of the Word of God and the power of God we've seen manifested throughout the church, church age will be magnified. Where we had one or two healings, there'll be a hundred. Where we've seen sporadic financial miracles, they'll be abundant. Where we've seen the peace of God in moderation, we'll experience it like a flood. There's one thing that you can know for sure, and that is God wants his church going out with a bang. And by that, I mean he wants to see the church be caught up into heaven, operating in great power in these last days, in these last of the last days. I'm looking for healing and miracles to become commonplace. And I can tell some things are changing in me. My attitude about miracles is changing. My attitude about the power of God on display is changing. 
And it's not changing just because I'm meditating in the Word more. I'm not doing any more than I ever have. But something's taking root on the inside of me in a different way than ever before. I don't know how to describe it any, any better than that. It's like I'm finally accepting what's always been true. It's like the things that have held me back in times past aren't holding me back anymore. I'm not looking for you to clap for me. I'm trying to describe something that I hope is happening in you too. The Old Testament describes some things whereas people at different times would cry out and say, where is the God that used to do miracles? Where is the one that promised Jesus' return? Some people have allowed themselves, and always will, I guess, some people have allowed themselves to be discouraged because of time and delay. And that's a tough thing to, to endure. I'll be the first to admit that. But God's word is true. And no matter what delay has taken place, no matter what you've been believing for that ha you haven't seen yet, it's impossible for God's word to fail. It's not impossible for us to fail it. But that comes down to a personal choice. We serve a good God. We serve a faithful God. I had an experience this last week that blessed me beyond measure. When I was, even before I got to Rhema to go to Bible school, there were some things that I was believing for. I was living at home in Birmingham, Alabama with my mom. And just as I woke up in the morning, I heard in my spirit, it sounded like an audible voice, but I'm, not, I'm sure it wasn't. But I heard in my spirit, the Holy Spirit quoting a verse of scripture to me. And I wasn't really familiar with it. I know I've read it. But my spiritual maturity at that point in time was pretty much non-existent. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. I was very familiar with verse 23. It talks about the makeup of man. How that man is spirit, soul, and body. But verse 24 says, Faithful is he that calleth you. He shall also do it. At the time, 
I was struggling with some things because of my lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, really. I knew that God had put it in my heart to go to Ramah, and I was believing for the money to go. But one of the things about gaining admission to Ramah at that point in time was that they were trying to, to fill the school with people who had a call of God to ministry. And in order to fill out the application, you had to identify what you feel like or thought that God had called you to. Well, I didn't know anything about being called to ministry. I didn't know what ministry really was. I had experience with a couple of pastors in the town that I lived in. I had read and I had been listening to Brother Hagen for some time at that point, and I knew he was a prophet and a teacher, but I didn't know anything about ministry or ministry call. And my heart condemned me when I wrote down what I did on the, uh, on the application. I didn't know for sure that I was called into the ministry. I didn't find that out until a couple of years later. And so I, I took the application and where it asked what you were called to, I just put, I just being honest, even if I thought that it would cost me being able to go, I just said I didn't know that whether or not I was. And since they had made such a big deal about Rhema being for those that were called to the ministry, I thought that shot me down right there. And so I was discouraged about it. And so the Lord, just as I woke up, quoted that scripture to me, but not from the King James. What I heard the Lord speak to me is faithful as he who calleth you, he shall also bring it to pass. Now that doesn't change the meaning of the scripture. But it changed everything about what I believed God was at work in doing. And he did just exactly that. He was faithful to bring it to pass. And it was a sign to me that I was called. Even though I didn't know what I was called to at that point. I have only remembered that scripture and that experience a couple of times. It's not something that really stands out in my relationship with God. But this last week I was reminded of it. And the way I was reminded of it just blessed my socks off. It was the Bible verse, the memory verse of my grandson in the school, in the class that he's in at school. So when they were over the other night, as part of his homework, he was doing his Bible verse. And I swear, as he recited that verse, my experience came back to me, and it was like God was calling me all over again. All through the lips of my grandson. Folks, God wants to do big things. He wants to use you in doing big things. He doesn't want us being impressed with the bigness of the thing. 
He just wants us to be obedient to him. Faithful is he who calleth you. He shall also bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your goodness. Even as your word says, Father, you sent your word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. That's what we do, Father. We rejoice in you. We magnify your holy name. Thank you, Lord, for healing our bodies. Thank you for forgiving our iniquities. Thank you for providing for us, not just our needs, Father, but our wants. Thank you, Father, for an abundance. Financial miracles in these last days. That we can declare your goodness and your wonderful works to the children of men. We love you, Father. And we magnify your holy name. We refuse to fear for you are with us. We will not be dismayed for you are our God. You strengthen us. You help us. You uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. And in your righteousness we are established. Oppression is far from us for we do not fear. And terror does not come nigh us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against us in judgment we will condemn. This is our heritage as children of God. And our righteousness is of you. Father, we pray that the word of God will take root deep in our hearts. So that we will not be amazed to see your works. But instead we will be patiently expecting. Steadfastly expecting. Your word to come to pass. In Jesus name. Amen.